All right, we have a lot to cover, as always. Revelation is, it's a thick book, amen? There's a lot of information. We have already been covering a lot of details, a lot of imagery. And as we step into chapter 11 this morning, as we get into 12 and 13 in the weeks coming up, it's, it, the imagery gets thicker. And it can be more difficult to process through it all. I can sit in all this imagery and details this morning, and you're all going to be drooling in about five minutes in the sleep. And how is that different from any other Sunday, you say? That's not nice. Come on, wake up. We're not, we're not gonna, I'm not going to bore you with all of that, but what I am going to do is I'm going to point you to where you can go sit and meditate on the answers for the imagery that John is providing. Because if I gave you all the information, you're just going to get this little tidbit and this little tidbit and everything else is going to go over your head. This is, this is thick. There's a lot of detail, and I'll point to you to where you can find the answers uh, for all the imagery that he's using. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, let's read through Revelation chapter 11, and you're going to get the thickness of it really quick. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands, standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them... Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues, all kinds of blows, as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They'll celebrate, they'll make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. No kidding. And they heard with a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, 
The third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks. O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. All right, so I just read through a chapter. That last sentence is fresh in your mind. Do you remember any of the information that I gave you at the beginning? It's right there. There's so much information. It all gets really blurry. And this is what's important. This is what you need under your belt to understand the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, this is, this is Jesus unveiling himself, his nature, his character. He's unveiling his mind. He's unveiling his heart. He's unveiling his judgments, his decisions. He's unveiling the end, what this world is going to look like immediately prior to him coming and being king forever and ever and his kingdom being established forever and ever. So what do you need under your belt? Well, Genesis to Revelation. I'm, I'm serious. This is, this is not, it's, it's thick. Some of you, this is new. For some of you, you've studied this. This is my second time teaching through Revelation. I've heard others teach it multiple times. I forget information. I need to be reminded. And this has been a huge week of review for me. But to understand what's going on, what Jesus is communicating to John and the vision that he's seen, you got, you got to have a little bit of Genesis under your belt. So who created the heavens and the earth? This being that we called God. And he gave his creation, man, male and female, Adam and Eve, a command. This tree you can eat from, that tree don't eat from. Which tree did they choose? The one that they were told not to eat from. You need to, there's, there's a meditation factor, idea, where you need to say, what does, that, what does that mean? What does it mean to disobey God? What does it mean for God to tell me to do one thing and for me to go and do the exact opposite? That's called sin. And we see that in Genesis 3. And then we're told that sin is what brings death. The wages, the reward. You do a job, you get paid for doing your job. When you do sin, your reward for doing sin is death. What is death? Well, it's a separation. The day that Adam and Eve died, the day that they sinned, they died. They were separated. There was an intimacy that they had with God that was separated on that day. Physical death is the spirit, the soul being separated from the body. There's, there's meditation points in that. We watch that sin grow in Genesis. 
There's a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. All the names are awesome, but there's a man in Genesis 5 that pertains to Revelation 11 that you need to know. His name's Enoch. We're told that Enoch walked with God, and he was not because God took him. It's pretty much all that we know of him. We got his name. We got his relationship with God. And we got that in this list of men that died, this man did not die. God took him. Could be one of these two witnesses in Revelation. Could be. We're not sure. We watch sin grow in Genesis, grow to the point where God sends a flood and judges in judgment and executes every single human being except eight. What was the population of the earth at that time? I don't know. But out of those eight, the world is repopulated. And in the, the list of names, the list of these 70 names, these 70 nations in Genesis chapter 10, there's a name buried, and his name is Nimrod. And this man, his, it says the, the first fruits of the kingdoms that Nimrod established, the first one is Babel. And this is where we get Babylon from. When we get into chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation, we'll get into Babylon very thickly, but you'll want Jeremiah 50 and 51 in that information. But you sit in Babel. Babel means mixed up, confused. Humanity was mixed up. And in that mix-up and in the foundation of Nimrod's kingdom being Babel, which is Babylon, we have this establishment of these different nations in rebellion against their creator. So much so that they're exalting themselves. As they gather together, God scatters humanity and these kingdoms throughout the face of the earth so that sin would be limited. It was a limiting factor. And then out of those nations, God chose one man, Abraham, and that's the rest of Genesis. You need a little bit of Genesis under your belt. You need some of, you need some of Exodus, too, because we are told that this city that these two witnesses are killed in is known spiritually as both Sodom and Egypt. So Sodom is in Genesis, known for its immorality, for its wickedness. In the book of Ezekiel, it also tells us that those of Sodom, that they abused the poor and the weak. And God judged Sodom very specifically. That's in Genesis. When it comes to Jerusalem being spiritually known as Sodom, God's pointing to the immorality of his city that he chose to place his name in. When it says that Jerusalem is spiritually known as Egypt, Egypt is known not necessarily for its immorality, but for its persecution of God's kids. So when the nation of Israel goes into Egypt to survive a famine, because the Lord takes them there, they find themselves in bondage for centuries. Exodus is that story of God redeeming. How long did those people wait? This is that idea of what are you waiting on God for? The nation of Israel waited for generations, four generations, to be redeemed from their slavery. And as God is telling Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt to let his children go, what does God do? He pours out different judgments, different plagues. One of those plagues is that there was, Moses had power over the water to turn the water into blood. It's the same imagery, it's the same miracle it's the same consequence that these two witnesses are going to perform in the future 
So there's an idea that one of these two witnesses may be Moses. As you sit in the rest of the Torah, so those first five books of the Bible, you have, especially towards the end of Leviticus and towards the end of Deuteronomy, the Lord lists before the people the blessings of following him and the curses of rebelling against him. And those are important to know and to understand because as you travel through the rest of the word of God, you watch his kids in rebellion and then you watch God perform the consequences that he said was going to come because of their rebellion. And in the midst of all of those hardships and those judgments, you continually watch the mercy of God and the grace of God and God continuing to reach his creation to restore them to free them from sin, to free them from death, and all the promises that are associated with them. Fast forward, we need to have under our belt Elijah, because Elijah might be one of these two witnesses also. So, in Elijah, his story begins in 1 Kings 17. And Elijah's prophecy, as a a prophet, his ministry begins with withholding rain, withholding the, the water that we need from heaven to grow our crops, to be fed. As a judgment, God gave Elijah the power to keep the rain from coming for over three years. The exact same power that these two witnesses will be given in the future is the same power that Elijah had. Now, Elijah's ministry is during the time of Ahab. Ahab was a yahoo. He married a very wicked woman, Uh, uh, what's her name? Jezebel, who is from a foreign nation, and Jezebel brought with her her foreign gods. And you watch that whole interaction between Elijah and Jezebel and who she represents. And again, we're going to see this imagery, even that Jezebel-type imagery in the woman who rides the beast later on in Revelation. So all this imagery is important. So Elijah withholds water from heaven. Not only that, later on after Ahab dies, his son Ahaziah becomes king. This is in the first chapter of 2 Kings. This guy falls through some lattice and he's hurt and he's going to die and he's sending some guys to go to the prophets of Baal to see what's going to happen to him, if he's going to die, if he's going to recover. And Elijah meets the messengers and said, what do you, what do you, why are you asking Baal? Don't you, don't you know who the true and living God is? And sends him back, and there's this whole question, that kind of stuff. Ahaziah knows that it's Elijah that's interacted. So Ahaziah, he sends 50 guys to go to Elijah to bring Elijah to him. And 50 guys show up to Elijah and say, hey, come with us. What does Elijah do? He says, if I'm a man of God, may fire fall from heaven and consume you. And fire falls from heaven Nice, powerful lightning bolt that splits into 50 tongues of fire and all 50 guys die. That testimony goes back to Ahaziah. Sends another 50. Same thing happens. And he sends another 50. And this guy's smart. He says, hey, we're just the messengers. Don't call down fire from heaven. What did James and John, the disciples of Jesus, want to do to the Samaritans? Let's call fire down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah. The power that was given to Elijah in these circumstances in the Old Testament, God's divine intervention 
in humanity. These are not natural occurrences. This, in, these actions are going to be the same power and the same actions that are given to these two witnesses in the future. Who else do we need under our belt? How about Isaiah? Isaiah was a prophet, 700 B.C. roughly. He is a prophet in the area of Jerusalem. He is prophesying during the time of the Assyrians. And as he is, God in, the, in Isaiah chapter 6, God is asking for a witness. Who can I send that will go and be my voice? Who can I send with my words that's going to go and commute? communicate those words. And Isaiah raises his hand and says, here I am, send me. And you watch prophecy after prophecy, judgment after judgment, not only against Israel and Judah, but against the surrounding nations also in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. In the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, you have many, many prophecies concerning God's kingdom and that kingdom coming. And he's prophesying during a time where God is using a wicked nation, a wicked kingdom, to be the chastening rod for his own children who are being wicked, these wicked nations. And the true heart is always crying out, Lord, when? We sit in our own nation today, and we can sit in all the blessings of our nation and our culture, and we can sit in all the wickedness and all the issues that we have going on. And all of us are crying to one degree or another, Jesus, when are you coming? If you're not going to come yet, Lord, when are you going to send us godly leaders who will submit themselves by themselves independently, without pressure, without politics, to bend the knee to you? When, Jesus? When are you going to send them? It's the same cry of Isaiah's culture. And Isaiah gives us a lot of descriptions of that future kingdom that's coming that we see at the end of chapter 11. His kingdom comes at the sounding of that seventh trumpet. And we'll get into that in a minute. You need Jeremiah under your belt. Jeremiah is a couple hundred years after, well, 150 years after Isaiah. He is at the same time a contemporary with Ezekiel and with Daniel. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was a prophet in Judah at the time that the Babylonians are coming in as another wicked nation that God is using to judge a nation that ought to be imaging God to all the world, but ultimately they're just imaging their idolatry to the world. In, it's in Jeremiah chapter 4, God tells Jeremiah, I'm going to put my word in your mouth. And as my word comes out of your mouth, it's going to be like fire, and the people are going to be like wood. So, these two witnesses in, in Revelation 11, how those who want to do them harm, how do they defend themselves? They open up their mouth, and is this like dragon fire that's flying out of their mouth, and people are roasted like barbecue? We're told in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation 19 that Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, and with that sword, he slays the nation. So there's, there's imagery involved here. The, the emphasis and the image is focused upon the word of God. And again, so we get back into Jeremiah to understand that imagery, that God's word, God's judgment can be in my mouth. It can be, it can be refreshing water that just satiates the thirst and the hunger that you have for God. At the same time, it could be something that is judging, 
not judging in the sense of my judgmental attitude, but pronouncing God's judgment, God's rebuke, and people just being fodder. And again, just sitting in, in that imagery. You have to sit in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1, he is given an incredible vision that's very similar to John's vision in regards to the glory of God. And just like last week that we saw John eat the scroll that this angel had in his hand that was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his belly, Ezekiel did the exact same thing. And you can sit chapter and chapter with Ezekiel in regards to the judgments that God pronounces But one of the repetitious sentences in Ezekiel's prophecy is, God says, I am doing this. I am speaking this, and I am doing this so that human beings will know that I am God. You sit in the judgments that go on. In Ezekiel 37, there's this valley of dry bones. It was one of the lyrics that we had today that the Spirit of God would provide some water to these dry bones. But in Ezekiel 37, you have this this valley of dry bones, and the vision that is given is that, can these dry bones live, Ezekiel? And they say, I don't know, you tell me. And he is told to prophesy, he's told to speak the word of God to this valley of dry bones. And then all of that imagery, as he speaks the word, the Spirit of God enters into these bones, and these bones connect together. Tissue forms on these bones again, and these bones are covered in flesh, and they stand up. And this, these dead people, this dead nation, has been revived and resurrected again in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 38, 39 talks about this war I, some believe that it's prior to the events of Revelation. Some believe that it's tied to uh, the events of Revelation itself. But in Ezekiel 40, again, an, another prophet given another vision with another measuring rod. Same thing. John is given a measuring rod. Go and measure what? The temple. In Ezekiel 40, in the subsequent chapters, you have a description of this temple structure. At a time when Ezekiel is given this prophecy, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple doesn't exist, and he's given a vision in regards to a future temple. And we believe that this is the millennial temple, that when Jesus comes and he rules and reigns, for a thousand years that we see in Revelation chapter 20, and we'll talk about that when we get there, that this will be the, the, the dimensions of the temple during those thousand years. You got to sit with Daniel. Daniel's hard. The early chapters are pretty easy, they're pretty direct, but when you sit in all the imagery of the visions that Daniel has given, it's really thick, and it's hard to remember all the information. But you want to sit in Daniel 7, you want to sit in Daniel 9, you want to sit in Daniel 12, because in all of these prophecies, there's a description of the kingdom of God, which is coming, which will destroy all other kingdoms, and his kingdom will be forever and ever, and the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, Jesus, God's Son, God himself, will reign forever and ever, amen, right? 
But in the midst of those prophecies of those chapters that I just gave you, there is a description of not just the world's kingdom that will be at that time, but also this particular individual that we identify as the Antichrist, the one who is going to set up in God's temple this abomination which makes desolate, which that starts getting into just a lot of interpretation of how we apply, apply and understand what is being given to us. John is being told to go and measure the temple of God. Today, the temple of God does not exist. It was destroyed by the Romans. The rebuilt temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So if you go to Israel today and you go up on the platform where the temple was, there's the Dome of the Rock structure that's there. There's the Alaska Mosque. It is under the authority of Gentiles currently. Where am I? Who am I talking about? Daniel still. So the abomination of desolation. We are told, and in, in Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24. He talks about it in Luke 21. These are two important chapters for information here. Daniel talks about this information, that this individual is going to make a covenant of peace with the nation of Israel. This covenant is going to last for seven years. We are told here in Revelation that these two witnesses, that their ministry lasts 42 months or 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. Most understand that, that will, their ministry will be the first three and a half years of what is known as the tribulation. So from the time that the Antichrist makes a covenant of peace with the nation of Israel, these two men, these two witnesses, are going to clothe themselves in sackcloth, which is a symbol of mourning, and it's a call to repentance. And they are going to be telling the Jews, they are going to be telling the world that the covenant that was just made with the Antichrist, that it was wrong, that that's the wrong covenant to, to be entering into. They ought to enter into the covenant with God's Son, with Jesus, the new covenant which frees us from sin, which frees us from death. And these individuals are going to be prophesying. They're going to speak the word of God, his truth, for those three and a half years. At the middle of that three and a half years, we are told that the Antichrist steps into the temple of God and declares himself to be God. And that lines up with, see, this is our understanding. Again, this is all held loosely. This is our understanding that it's at that time that the Antichrist is going to be given the authority to kill these two witnesses and the events that we just read through. And as the, you can picture, as those dead bodies are there in the street of Jerusalem and they are, have been able to perform harm to torment humanity for three and a half years, right, during the seal judgments, during the trumpet judgments, during that whole period of time is when we think that their ministry is going on. They are going to die. The world is going to celebrate just like Christmas. They're going to give gifts to one another. They're going to rejoice as they sit in the perversion of allowing dead bodies just to remain in the streets. And during those three and a half days, I, I can picture it. The Antichrist, this, this individual who claims to be the king of the earth is going into the temple and says, I am God. Worship me. Daniel gives us all that information. Daniel is essentially the prime minister underneath King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, wicked nation. 
When that, uh, when that nation is conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, he becomes prime minister to Darius. Watch God appoint him for a specific time, incredible prophecy. So in the midst of that, God had told Jeremiah that this harsh discipline, harsh judgment that came from God, that the nation of Israel was going to be scattered out of the nation of Israel for 70 years. At the end of that 70 years, there's going to be a regathering. In the midst of that regathering, we have the, prophesy, the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. They are the two prophets that God sends to the Jews as they have come back into the nation of Israel and they are rebuilding the temple. And it's through the prophecies of those two individuals to the culture and specifically to Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua is the high priest during that time when the temple is being rebuilt. Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. He represents that government authority. So that imagery of both priest and king. So when we sit in the imagery of these two witnesses, we're looking at the imagery of them being representing both priest and king in those offices which Jesus occupies both of those. And again, this is in, in uh, Zechariah chapter 4. We are given this description of these two olive trees. These olive trees produce what? They produce olive oil. What is olive oil used for? It's used to light, for light. If you light it on fire, you put it in a lamp, and there you have light. So it's this imagery that this lampstand is being supplied continuously by these two olive trees. We are told in Zechariah that these two olive trees stand beside the God who created the heavens and the earth. And we are told here in Revelation that these two witnesses, that these are the two who stand before the Lord. Remember when James and John send mommy to go to Jesus and say, hey, can my two boys, can one of them sit on the right hand and one sit at your left hand? That's who they're talking about. These two witnesses. Oh, one more. You need to have Malachi under your belt. Why? Because Malachi, very last verses of Malachi tell us that Elijah is going to come before Jesus comes. And when you sit in the Gospels, Jesus talks that John the Baptist was filled essentially with that spirit of Elijah that he came and he prepared the way. He prepared uh, that specific prophecy, says that Elijah is going to come. And he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to the fathers. There was a partial fulfillment of that prophecy in John the Baptist prior to Jesus' ministry. And then there is a future fulfillment of that, that before Jesus comes back, that God is going to send Elijah. And whether physically or just the spirit of Elijah, don't know. In Matthew chapter 17, you have the Mount of Transfiguration. This is when Peter, James, and John, they see Jesus transfigured. He's in his human body, and then all of a sudden, he's glowing supernaturally. Something just happened here. And who did Peter, James, and John see talking to Jesus? They see Moses, and they see Elijah. Yeah, and Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. Elijah, you go back into 2 Kings chapter 2. Elijah is like Enoch. He does not die. God sends a chariot of fire. I can't imagine that scene, but Elisha got to see it. Pretty cool. And he was taken up into heaven and he never died. 
That's one of the reasons why people think one of these two witnesses might be Elijah, one might be uh, Enoch, one might be Moses, one might be Joshua, and the other is Zerubbabel. There's all, there's all these different ideas. Some sit in this whole chapter as this is just all imagery that these two witnesses, that they're representing the church to a different degree. And again, I don't, I don't sit in that. I believe that these are two real men in the future. And the power that was given to these individuals that have been preserved for us in the Old Testament, whether Moses, whether Elijah, whether Enoch, that the same power is going to be given to them. The same authority is going to be given to them. And the miracles that God performed historically, those are going to be performed again in the future so that what? So that all of humanity knows that God is God. Now, I titled this morning's sermon, Jesus and His Witnesses. So not only do you need a lot of the Old Testament under your belt, you need the Gospels too. You always need the Gospels under your belt because you always want to know who Jesus is, what it is that Jesus has said. But after Jesus died for our sins, that which brings about your death was laid on Jesus on the cross. His life for your life His body was not left in the open and left on the cross. His disciples came and took his body in mourning and confusion, prepared it with what limited time they had left, and set it in a tomb on an altar, so to say. It'd be just a platform where to lay the body. Three days later, you have Mary running, uh, coming to continue to prepare his body and anoint his body as they did culturally. And when she showed up, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. The angel of God was sent to her to tell her that he's not here, he's risen. Go and tell his disciples, go and tell the boys and the ladies that are there too. He is risen. James and John come running. They see the empty tomb. They go back. They're gathered together. They're afraid. They're afraid the persecution is going to come their way. They're doubting. They're doubting who Jesus was. They're doubting Jesus' words. Jesus didn't do what they thought he was going to do when he was going to do it. They didn't listen to his words even as he was preparing them for his death, burial, and resurrection. And in the midst, as they're gathered in a small room, all of a sudden, Jesus just appears. And they're freaking out. What does Jesus say? Peace. Manifests himself to them in his resurrected body. Speaks to them. Gives them instruction for an extended period of time. You get into that first chapter of Acts. What does Jesus tell the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? You are my witnesses. It's not something you do through your relationship with me, Jesus says. This is who I have made you to be. Your life, whether, whether you are witnessing Jesus in a good way or a bad way, If he is your savior, 
your life as a testimony, a witness, an evidence to the truth of who he is and his power. I can sit for the remainder of this day and give you testimony for how Jesus has changed me, how he has transformed me, how he has spoken to me different promises at different times, how he has made known to me that the tomb is empty. That the testimony that we've been given, that this man rose again from the dead and he ascended to heaven. So these two witnesses, they ascend to heaven in a cloud just like Jesus ascended to heaven in a cloud. It's the same imagery. But Jesus declares to all of his disciples that there is something and someone that you need to be filled with to be my witness, and that's the Holy Spirit. He says, don't go out on your own. In Acts chapter 1, it's you wait, you tarry, until you are endued with power from on high, until you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And on that day, that day is known, it's the day of Pentecost, it's a, it's a Jewish feast, but on that day of Pentecost, you see Jews from all different nations of the world, from where they were scattered, they are gathered in Jerusalem for this feast. All these different tongues, all these different cultures, all these different personalities, and what does God do? Does he scatter them? No, it's this imagery of bringing them back. In Genesis, he scattered the nations. In Acts, we're watching the gathering of all. Anyone who wants to bend the knee, the heart, the mind to Jesus in faith. You are filled with him. I think two or three of the songs that we sang this morning talked about his presence. It's not just that he's present in a church building. He is with you. The end, at the end of Matthew, I am with you always. And I'm sending you. I'm sending you out to the nations to make disciples of those nations. How are disciples made? Through the proclaiming of his word. Who is Jesus to you? How, how, have you, how, how has Jesus imaged himself to you? How do you image Jesus to your family members? How do you image Jesus to your coworkers? How do you image Jesus to the strangers? This comes out in all of our different personalities, all of our different contexts. Some of it, it's going and, you know, cold knocking on a door or going out into the public marketplace and speaking to whoever wants to listen. For others, it's talking to your spouse. For others, it's talking to family members, to your friends at school, whatever it may be. It's, this is the reality. Jesus, you are his witness. If you're his. It's not something that you do. It's something that you are. It's something that you are empowered with. So when you sit in all of that information as background, you put all of those different texts as a lens of interpretation that you lay upon Revelation 11. As we watch the temple being measured, as we see that the courtyard is excluded to the Gentiles because the Gentiles are, have authority and are trotting under feet 
Now, again, there's, there's Eastern imagery in that over what is called the holy city, but the holy city is also known spiritually as Sodom and Egypt, images that ought not to be in the body of Christ. God empowers specifically these two witnesses in the future to prophesy for three and a half years to speak what is true. Some will listen, most will not. He empowers us today to be his witnesses. Some will listen, some will not. The imagery of the olive trees, again, that imagery of this provision of oil, the provision of the Holy Spirit. Fire proceeding from their mouth, again, imagery of God's word, and whether this is physical fire, fire coming down from heaven, straight out of the mouth, the word of God that that execute these individuals. The culture during that time, those who dwell on the earth are going to consider those words to be torment. Those who love the Lord will consider those words to be wonderful. Power to keep water, rain from falling. Power to turn water into blood. They're going to be executed by this beast that comes out of the bottomless pit. We will identify him next week. Some believe Satan. Uh, it may also be Antichrist himself and a blurring there, but there's the beast that comes out of the pit, a beast that comes out of the sea, and a beast that comes out of the land that we'll look at in the next couple of weeks. The great city, the holy city, is Jerusalem where Jesus Christ was crucified. Again, just already talked about Sodom and Egypt there. Three and a half days, there's going to be rejoicing over their death and those bodies. But just as the Spirit of God breathed life into the vision in Ezekiel 37 of those dead man's bones, just as God has breathed and continues to breathe his life into you, his life will be breathed into these two dead witnesses. Everybody's going to be shocked. They're going to be taken up into heaven just as Jesus was taken into heaven. And there's a specific impact upon Jerusalem. There's a specific earthquake there. Percentage, a tenth of the city is going to fall. Specific number of people, 7,000 people are going to lose their life. But there seems to be a turning point where here we have the rest Again, you sit in, um, in, Rev in Romans, Paul says that there's coming a day when all the nation of Israel will be saved. Just won't be a remnant, but the whole nation is going to come to the Lord in faith. This seems to be pointing to that day where the rest, those who remain, their light bulbs just went on and they choose to give glory to God in heaven. And we are going to pick up in verse 15 next week as we sit in the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the anger of the nations, the anger of God. And what is it that his kingdom comes at that point? Because we've still got, we've got 22 chapters. We're only halfway through Revelation. What is it that his kingdom has come at the sounding of the seventh trumpet? And we will sit in all that information next week. So Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously. And we confess to you that a lot of your word is too much information, Lord. I can only process so much at a time. I can only remember so much. But right now we're turning our hearts to, to worship, to responding to you and to communion. 
And when it comes to communing with you, fellowshipping with you, you tell us to remember you, Jesus. Because we need constant reminders. I need to know what your word says. Not just the easy stuff, but the difficult stuff. And I need to know all of it, Lord. But I'm forgetful. I need the reminders. I need this this gathering every week, Lord, to be reminded that I'm not alone. That there are many who love you. That have been redeemed by you. That are being transformed by you. That trust you. That love you. There are many, Lord, that are waiting. They they sharpen me and they, they speak to me. They witness you to me every single week. I need this time of worship just to pour out my soul before you, Lord. I need this time of study. I need this time of communion to remember that my God became a man and gave his body for me to take away my sin. So as we turn to worship and communion, Lord, we're going to hold this bread that represents your sinless body that was broken for each of us so that our sin and so that our death could be removed from us as far as the east is from the west, gone. That today, Lord, I can stand, that I can stand in the presence of my creator, in your holiness, in your righteousness, in your grace, in your mercy. As we take the cup, we remember your blood, a covenant being signified by the shedding of your blood, that it's not through obedience to the law, but it's by faith that you have given to us a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit, a new life. You have placed yourself within us. We're no longer looking for a structure some building, but we are the temple of God. Wherever I go, there you are. May we know who it is that we hope in. May we know where our confidence comes from. Even though there's many times where the enemy appears to be having victory in our life or in the culture, just as we watched the enemy execute your witnesses in Revelation 11. We're more than anything that can even have the appearance of conquering us. Nothing can remove us from your love. Nothing can remove us from your life. Nothing can take away your light, Lord. praise you. We worship you. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.